Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts of the channel. And I recently spoke with Guojun Wang about his new book, Staging Personhood, Costuming in Early Qing Drama. This came out in 2020 with Columbia University Press. And this was a really fun book for me to read because it looks at an event that looms large for historians of late imperial China, the Ming-Qing transition. Um, But it takes a really different approach to the study of this event. It explores what the Ming-Qing transition meant for clothing, and specifically clothing on the stage, performance clothing, costumes. This book, by looking at how Qing sartorial regulations impacted what appeared on the stage, shows how theatric costuming in traditional China was never static and was instead in constant interaction with historical changes. As such, it blends together, you know, beautifully and effortlessly history and literature, and in doing so, stitches together all different kinds of materials, from fragments of plays and visual and performance records to nuances in canonical, well-known works. Most of this book is made up of four case studies, uh, and they each move the reader chronologically through the early Qing period. And I have to say that I loved each and every one. There are some fascinating plays here, when, and you know, ones that touch on really big themes, the crossing of geographic boundaries, cross-dressing across both gender and ethnic divides, chastity, suicide, and time. And I'll just stress this last theme, time in particular, because it is one of my absolute favorite parts of this book, the discussion here about how some of these plays deal with and represent the historical past is just fascinating. So I highly recommend this book if you're looking for a careful reading of some plays that you might know well and some plays that you probably don't know at all. Uh, If you're looking for a different take on this historical moment, the Ming-Ching transition, or simply if you want to see what it can look like to combine history and literature together. I hope that you enjoy it and I hope that you stay to listen to our conversation where we touch on some of these case studies. And uh, Guojun also talks about not only how what was conceived of as a single chapter in a dissertation prospectus, how that grew into an entire book, but also speaks to the challenges of writing about silences. So with that, I leave you to enjoy the conversation that follows. I'm here today with Guo Jun to talk about his new book, Staging Personhood, Costuming in Early Qing Drama. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Guo Jun, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Of course. So why don't we start at the beginning with your beginning? Could you say a few words about how you came to the field? How did you come to work on Chinese literature and Qing drama in particular? Oh, sure. Um, you know, that's, that's a easy and also difficult question because uh, I kind of have to reflect on my life to think about 
hey, why and how did I come to be this person that I am as a scholar of Chinese literature? Um, well, I can briefly mention um, that I grew up or for the first 16 years of my life, I lived in a mountainous village in North China. That's the rural area of Chenge. Um, I also learned from the elderly people in my village that my ancestors actually migrated from Shandong province to Chengde to outside the Great Wall during the early Qing period. So probably around the beginning of the 18th century. Um, and the village is pretty much a agrarian society. A majority of the people are still farmers and my family still live there. Um, during the years of my childhood, I was pretty much spending the days and nights um, working on the farms, collecting firewood from the mountains, catching fish, and uh, you know just enjoying what nature had to offer in, in rural China. Um, and then I developed this, this keen affinity to nature. I think that played an important role in, uh, in my future uh, career and uh, scholarly interest. So, you know, fast pass, fast pace into uh, when I went to high school, that's for the first time I went to live in the city of Chengde uh, in a boarding high school. And then once I picked up a few or two books uh, from a street vendor, one is titled, you know, The Three Tang Poems, Tang Shi Bai Shou, and the, the other is uh, 300, 300, not three, 300 lyrics of the Song Dynasty. So reading the, the poems, I realized there's a, such a strong connection between Chinese literature, especially poetry, and, and nature. And then I went on to read and almost mem memorized the entire 300 Tang poems. Um, I think that's how I got started uh, to, to relate my life to Chinese literature in a very, um, you know, everyday life way. And then that also led to my major in Chinese literature when I went to college in Beijing Normal University. Um, I have to say it was a hard time to, for me to, to learn to appreciate what scholars do uh, when studying literature. And I must thank Professor Guo Yingde, a philologist and scholar of Chinese drama and fiction at the Beijing Normal, who, who taught me all the things about Chinese drama, philology, um, that really uh, kind of paved the way for my future study and research in Chinese literature. It was also him who encouraged me to study abroad. I had no idea or intention of you know, coming to the States to study, but he encouraged me and I followed his advice and I came to the States to do my uh, PhD. You know, that's, that's the beginning of another, another story. <laughs> Fabulous. So you were sort of, it was all around you and you had some great teachers along the way. Yes, definitely. Um, in China and in the States, I mean, at Yale, I was working with Tina Lu, Kang Yisun Zhang, and in Peter Purdue, so in, that's in the history and Asian department. I was also able to explore other disciplines, uh, anthropology, art history, etc. So you were asking about how I came to work on this topic. Um, I guess all those influences, my 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 training in China, my experience uh, in the States, and my exposure to 
historical studies, especially New Qing history, led me to focus on this time period, Ming Qing transition, and to invest more um, on uh, reading and uh, thinking about drama. So that's the general uh, you know, experiences that led to this project. Fabulous. So you mentioned there, you know, sort of the, you know, the different disciplines, and this is certainly an interdisciplinary book. Um, and that's, you know, definitely something we're going to be talking a lot about uh, going forward. But before that, I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about the sort of the life story of this book itself, because you, you know, you've just sort of outlined there your origin story. Um, yeah. And you say in the acknowledgments of your book that this project came out of your PhD dissertation. Um, mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about that in particular, about sort of revising your dissertation and turning it into the fabulously interdisciplinary book that it is? Uh, what was important to you in that process, that dissertation to book move? Yes, uh, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a long process in the making um, from, I remember, 2012, that's when I first conceived or started to prepare and prepare the, we call it prospectus, basically a proposal for dissertation. There are, there were quite a few radical changes in the process. The first one was that I did not plan on writing a, a dissertation on uh, clothing, uh, identity, or costuming. I was starting with the idea of antithetical practices, like censorship on drama, or regulations on uh, costuming and uh, the basically the, the negative and antagonistic views of, of Chinese drama. So I was starting with something like that for the dissertation. And one chapter I planned to deal with costuming and clothing in early Qing period. I started with that chapter and then it, ten- it became the whole dissertation. I basically gave up on the rest of the dissertation proposal um, I think I was I was lucky to be allowed to do that. So that was a kind of major turn in the early stage of the dissertation. So I realized clothing and costuming can be a really rich topic. So I basically um, decided to focus on this one perspective for the dissertation. When when the dissertation, um, you know, if you look at my dissertation title, I I, I called it. Uh, Satoru Spectacles, Clothing, Identity, and the State in Early Qing Drama, I intentionally avoided the word costume or costuming. Uh, I, I can tell an interesting story. So in the early period, early uh, year or so of my dissertation uh, writing, I talked with Tina Lu about what I had in mind, what I was <clears throat> working on. And, and, and she said, well, that sounds interesting. If you work on costuming, uh, basically she was saying this, this was going to be a very promising product. And I, I didn't reply to that comment, respond, but I said to myself, well, what is she thinking about? How, how is it possible that I work on costuming? I don't know about you know, all the clothes used on stage. I have no idea uh, of, of the clothing history. So I intentionally avoided the word costuming in my dissertation. That's what I, what I did for the dissertation. Uh, you, you asked about the dissertation to book transition. I think a major revision I did was, uh, we can say conceptualization. 
or finding a key concept and defining it and developing it into an organizing principle for the product. So that's what I did um, in the first uh, first two years after after dissertation. I basically thought a lot about the concept of costuming, and 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 I realized this is something I can really really rely on to build many of my arguments. So so I changed the title and the keyword and and use the costuming to to define what I'm working on uh, and, and structure the whole, whole book. Um, that's a, one major revision. Of course, I had other opportunities to visit uh, like Taiwan and talking to scholars in Asia, Taiwan and China, and then uh, accessing more materials and enriching the chapters. So the book is uh, based on the dissertation. I, I basically rewrote the introduction completely. I, re I rewrote many versions and I in, in expanded or added a chapter, the first one. The rest, uh, I fine-tuned them without making, making major revisions. Um, that, that's uh, that's pretty, pretty much what I did for um, the revision process. Fabulous. And I love that, you know, the one chapter you started on first, the chapter about early Qing drama and clothing sort of took over the dissertation and then costuming in turn took over from there. I think that's a great um, <laughs> transformation I I, journey. Yeah, I don't know whether that's a good suggestion for dissertation writers, though. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Be, I guess it's a, maybe a, a gentle warning. Be careful what you start with, because you might find out that it turns into an entire project of in and of itself. Uh, I think you you know you mentioned costuming there and how important that is in the book. I think with that, why don't we talk about costuming itself? Um, and you know you use this word very deliberately. Um, you specify in the book that costuming is in reference to the theatrical appropriation of body and clothing in drama text, performances, and different types of visual representations. So it encompasses dressing, undressing, cross-dressing, different modes of associating bodies and clothing all in theatrical practices. So could you talk a little bit about costuming in particular and what it's sort of, you know, doing for you in the book? Because it really is, you know, so uh, fundamental to the work that the, you know, the book now transformed is doing. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's definitely the central concept and uh, my way, uh, my entry point into the materials and the historical moment. As, as you as you just read from my my uh, discussion, I, I kind of define two meanings of uh, costuming. Uh, there is a narrow definition of costuming, which is which is the use of costumes on stage, uh, the stage costume. What kind of designs, materials were used, and how they were combined or coupled with different uh, role types or characters on stage. But that that is not my main focus in the book. Uh, and I had this broad definition you just introduced. Mm -hmm. I think that definition allows me to do um, a few things. First, it's, it, it offers a, a material approach to early Qing literature and society. Um, so instead of looking at the, uh, the words, the expressions, the emotions, I, I, I start um, or I 
try to trace the use of clothing, the descriptions of clothing, hairstyle, and gendered bodies in the theatrical texts and performance records. So that gives me a concrete entry point to, to understand, to perceive um, uh, the dynastic transition in, in early Qing history. So I think the material perspective really allows me to see things otherwise not that visible to scholars and the readers of early Qing literature. And then following that, it allows me to deal with a, a body of very challenging materials, which is the, uh, the performance text, because I'm dealing with drama. And very often, um, well, I mean, unlike poetry or prose or, or the other more canonical genres in Chinese history, drama was kind of marginal, and many of the existing texts are in fragments. Um, very often, we do not know the real authors, or we do not know whether the author wrote this very edition, or there could be other people, you know, adding materials to it. So sometimes it gets really messy. Um, and, and costuming allows me to look at, you know, drama scripts and performance records, the fragments and, and performance records. So, so that, that concept allows me to bring together all kinds of materials, um, to put them into one conversation. Uh, that's the second, second point. And, and lastly, I would like to say that costuming allows me to bracket the focus on um, the identity of Ming loyalists or the so-called remnant subjects of the Ming dynasty. Um, I'm not starting with, I'm not saying that that's not important. I mean, it's very important to talk about the writings by Ming loyalists in early Qing China. But in this project, dealing with this particular body of materials, I'm starting with costuming, not the authorial identities or authorial intentions. So, so that's something um, I think really informs me about how I approach the, the dramas and uh, related historical documents uh, in this book. So that's a few things I have in mind when thinking about this concept. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that. thank you for that explanation. I think, as you just sort of outlined, costuming is doing so much um, <laughs> work for you here. And I think you, you bring up a point about um, sources and the fact that costuming allows you to sort of broaden um, the sources that you look at. And I'm a little torn because I want us to move to talk about the Ming-Qing transition, but I feel that this is a really great moment to talk about sources and silences in the sources, because, you know, on one level, this is a book about um, clothing that is costumes that are worn on stage and central to this, you know, you talked about identity and in the Ming-Qing transition, one part of this book is about how Manchu clothing, you know, makes its way on stage, whether it does or not. I mean, you point out in the book that there is a real silence there because there are very, very few plays that feature Manchu clothing on the stage. It was a real challenge in the Qing, in the early Qing to represent Manchu clothing on stage. And I have to imagine that at least someone early on in the project 
you know, hearing that this was a part of your work told you that this project couldn't be done, that there weren't the sources for it. I just have to imagine that someone said this to you because when I was describing this book, you know, at the very basic level to someone, that is their first response. Oh, there was no Manchu clothing in early Qing drama on stage. What are you talking about? So could you actually talk a little bit about this in particular? Um, is this something that people told you was, you know, was this a challenge, you know, trying to put together um, the sources for this book? Yes, you are so right. Uh, I remember <laughs> at least uh, one or two occasions, uh, once when Tina Lu said, uh, well, you have proved this to be very interesting. I mean, the silence to be very interesting. But you have to tell us so what? You have, to, <laughs> you have to do something more, but how can you go ahead and do it? Um, yeah, so that was one comment. I remember another time uh, running into David Ralston, uh, and he asked me what I was working on. I said I was working on uh, early Qing drama, costuming. And the first question he asked was, "But what are the what are the materials you are looking at?" <laughs> so, so that is yeah the major challenge. Um, and we can possibly tie the two questions together. You you raised the Qing transition. I guess for uh, very briefly for people who are not familiar with the with the history. Basically, during the 17th century, the Manchu people took over China, um, overthrew over over the top of the Ming Dynasty, ruled by Han Chinese people, and established this last imperial dynasty, which is the Qing Dynasty, uh, from the mid 17th century. And during the invasion and uh, conquest, um, they they forced Han Chinese males to change into Manchu hairstyle and clothing as a gesture of uh, submission. So, so that's the that's the that's the historical background. But uh, but the theater was well, theater theatrical practices continued to use the costuming um, that was passed down from the Ming Dynasty in terms of the styles. So that's the general situation. And the well, the the Qing government, the rule, the Qing rulers were really attentive or sensitive about how literature could, could capture historical changes and possibly uh, motivate anti-Manchu sentiments. So there were explicit and implicit censorship on literature. We often talk about Wen Ziyu or the Inquisition of writing. And as a result, many writings about the Qing transition, uh, if they ever, ever existed, they are missing now, including some drama titles uh, we know they were about the Minqing transition, but they are missing, not, no longer existing. Um, and, and also the Manchu rulers explicitly prohibited literature or drama from representing anything uh, that happened during the Qing dynasty. So there was this kind of general antagonism uh, toward drama. Um, the Manchu rulers in the early decades of the Qing dynasty in particular regarded theater as a depraved practice of, of the Han Chinese people, and they prohibited the Manchu people from visiting theaters, performing on stage, or they prohibited also um, the use of Manchu clothing on stage, especially outside the court. So in this kind of general background, I found, I found it hard to, um, to, to find and use materials related with this topic. I mean, there are costumes, actual theatrical costumes, 
possibly used by the early Qing court, and they are perhaps stored in the Palace Museum in Beijing. But I'm not a clothing historian, and I, I just couldn't access those materials. And I wish some uh, art historian or clothing historian had written a book on those costumes, but I, I didn't find any. Um, so I had to do with what I could, um, and also because I'm looking at the literature, not really those actual costumes. And by looking at early Qing literature and the drama, as you said, there are only a handful of dramas that are in the category of shishiju or dramas on contemporary events. And in those plays, there are even fewer, um, just a handful, which try to handle or tackle the issue of dressing people in or uh, uh, in the Manchu way or not in the Manchu style. So I had to, I guess, in one way, I had to look very broadly um, into the existing body of early Qing drama to see what, what we can find or what we cannot find to prove the, the silence, the absence, and prove the meaning of that absence. And on the other hand, I have to dig deeply into the existing materials um, and see what traces are left in, in history that I can try to make sense of. Uh, basically, like the fragments of one play, Wan Liyuan, a 10,000 Li reunion, or the nuances in a canonical play, such as Tao Hua Shan, Peach Blossom Fan. Um, so basically looking both widely, broadly, and very closely at a selected body of materials, and then try to place them into the general history of um, clothing, costuming, ethnic relations, that's my that's my approach um, to try trying to tackle this this challenge. Yeah, I think it's a great approach, and I love the way you framed it in terms of you know going both you know both broad and specific because you know as as you were saying about you know the silences that are there, you mentioned in the book at some point that there are some. I feel like I should say 400. There's a large number of sort of Ming dramas about historical moments. And then there's, you know, sort of very, very few for the Qing, right? Like there's lots of information about um, what co- what uh, clothing should be worn and how to represent non-Han characters in terms of their clothing for the Ming, but very, very little in the Qing, right? And there's, there's a, a challenge there because the silence indicates that this is a sensitive issue, that this is something that's different, um, but how do you then interrogate it? Um, so I think you're, you know, the broad and and specific approach, I think that's a fascinating way of sort of framing it. Um, and in terms of, you know, the Ming-Ching transition, you point out in the book that the prohibition of men and women's Manchu clothes on stage in the early Qing, you know, and this is very much an early Qing thing, means that in terms of drama, that political, that dynastic transition is also a moment of dynastic rupture um, for the stage, for drama as well. Um, so I think it's sort of a double, a double rupture there. Yes, yes. So the rupture in the sense of the relation between clothing on and off stage in particular, because before the Qing dynasty, uh, we can pretty much see a a uh, free or very lively interaction between clothing on and off stage, clothing for people in everyday life, for so-called Han Chinese people and the non-Han people, they all found their way onto the stage use. 
um, throughout Chinese history. So the early Qing stands out as a, a unique moment when that that connection was forcefully severed uh, by by the ruling Manchu rulers, Manchu state. So that make make makes the early Qing uh, a particularly uh, rich moment in the history of Chinese drama. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as a whole, then this book really stands as a testament to what you can do, I think, uh, with, you know, such a uh, silence ridden um, topic, a, you know, a, a topic that as you sort of uh, mentioned in your description of some early interactions with eminent scholars in the field about, uh, about your work, a topic that might not immediately um, seem to be uh, you know, source, um, uh, something that could be done with available sources. Um, so why don't we talk about, you know, the different, you've mentioned that, you know, this book is about theatrical costuming and how at its core, this book is about, you know, negotiating different modes of identity and how those modes of identity were negotiated with theatrical costuming. Um, and in particular, you focus in the book on gender and ethnicity. You say in the introduction of the book that this book is really about a two-sided question. How did the Ming-Ching transition influence costuming as theatrical practices, and how in turn did costuming enable the production of different types of personhood in the early Qing? Um, and I, so with that, I think this moves us a little bit into some of the case studies of the book. <laughs> um, so the main thrust of the book, um, you've already mentioned that, you know, you have some more historically influenced um, chapters that sort of give the reader context. But then the main thrust is made up of four case studies, and these move, you know, largely chronologically. So in chapter two, if we could go there, um, you look at a really fascinating play, uh, Lovebird's Reversal. This play is, you know, it's, it is such a fabulous story. Um, it depicts a male scholar who exchanges clothing with a girl to avoid shaving his head during the Manchu invasion, while the girl changes into the scholar's clothes to avoid sexual assault. The girl then passes the imperial examination and as you know, when she does this, she wears Manchu dress. And this is such a fascinating play because it deals with the two major themes in the book, gender and ethnicity, and how these two identities intersect in this play is really fascinating. So in terms of the female character, she cross-dresses once to present herself as a male scholar, and then a second time when she dresses in Manchu style, and through this, you know, double cross-dressing, the categories of male and female are just totally upended. Um, and as you point out, through costuming, Lovebirds is really about, you know, the very serious identity crisis caused by the Ming-Ching transition. Um, so could you, I mean, I've I've tried to sort of capture the main idea of the play there, uh, but if, is there anything you want to sort of say about the real disruption of gender um, and the performance of cross-dressing in this absolutely fabulous play. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. You summarized the chapter better than I could have done, really. Uh, yeah, I do want to add that uh, this play was written in 1650s. That's only a few years after the Manchu takeover of China, especially in Nanjing, the South, South China, where this play was, uh, was uh, is, is set in. So the author also personally experienced the, the change. Um, so that's one of the earliest responses uh, to the Manchu invasion. And that's probably one of the 
few plays that mention the Manchu hair and the dress regulations um, because it has a person in the drama uh, entering stage and announcing the Manchu ordinance that you have to remove your hair, otherwise your, your head will be removed. So, so this is an early um, response to dictatorial changes in, in, in during the, the dynastic transition. In terms of gender relations, yes, the, the Manchu government's dress regulation was gender specific because it targeted uh, male Han Chinese people in society and it somehow uh, <clears throat> exempted uh, female people, women. But that doesn't mean uh, women's clothing or female clothing was not important. As we can see in this drama, that policy somehow um, created the, this situation in which female clothing could provide a sanctuary for a scholar who tried to preserve his hair during the change. This entire story of cross-dressing, the theme was not new. There were, there were many other stories about cross-dressing in the Ming Dynasty. So the, the overall plots um, are similar in this drama as, we, as in other dramas. But the unique part of it is that the cross-dressing not only takes place um, between genders, but also between ethnicities, as you mentioned. The woman, the, the girl in the story, um, takes the examination and becomes a successful candidate in the new, newly established Manchu government. And then she, as a man, changes into Manchu uniforms after the examination. And that poses the question, so what's going to happen afterwards? Usually in this kind of place, the, the boy and a girl will simply replace or, or exchange or change their clothes at the end of the drama. So the, the man is back to a man, the woman is back to a woman. Um, and sometimes they get married one more time, holding the ceremony one more time, just to make sure everyone is wearing the right clothes, uh, you know, according to their original so-called uh, gender identity. But in this one, what happens uh, in the end? Can the scholar simply borrow the girl's uh, uniform, but he does not have a degree. It wasn't him who succeeded in the examination. And, and what, what, where is he going to return to in the new world? What kind of clothes is he going to wear when every man in this empire um, has, has, is, is required to change into mental hairstyle and clothing? So all these ambiguities and challenges were, were, were made possible by the, the theme of the dynastic change and the dressing regulations. I basically start with this kind of puzzle and, and look at how um, the process disrupts the, the, the relations between the boy and the girl and the understandings of their cultural, ethnic, and gender identities. Um, I, I think that's, the, that's what the chapter tries to do. I think it's it's such a fabulous way to start the book off. I mean, I know it's I know it's chapter two, but in terms of starting the book off uh, on the case studies and sort of looking at um, plays themselves, because this play in particular, as you as you just pointed out, has just so much going on. Um, and one of my favorite moments in it, I think, is when the male character is sort of. Uh, 
you know, revealing himself to his father and his father is reacting then um, to his son's um, dressing as a woman and sort of uh, struggling with that. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about sort of the reveal when both of the characters, you know, return or, you know, deal with the problem of how to return to uh, what, you know, uh, clothing they should be um, wearing according to their gender um, and then sort of changed, uh, you know, different um, now that it's the Qing, um, different clothing that they're supposed to be wearing. Do you want to talk about the reveals sort of at all? Sure. When when the scholar initially decided to um, change into the girl's clothes, um, he cited the Confucian teaching that one shall not uh, harm one's body uh, to be out of the out of filial piety. He was citing his his parents to support his decision not to cut his hair. However, by the end of the drama, when the father uh, sees his, his, his child in female clothing, he was basically appalled and and then he wasn't he didn't care he doesn't care about the the scholar's excuse that I had to do this to preserve my hair. He basically ordered his his son to go in and change into the right hairstyle and clothing. So cut the hair to the in the appropriate style. Um, you know, all these places, they are really all obscure. And the drama never tells you what kind of styles of clothes or hairstyle they change into. So the drama leaves it there. And then as if everything just returns back to normal, the family members are reunited. And then they celebrate uh, this reunion. So, what what kind of clothes and hairstyle does he change in change into? That remains remains a question. In the case of the girl, the, it's similar. The mother also uh, expresses surprise at the girl dressed up as a man. Um, he just orders his daughter to to go in and change back to to her original clothing. Well, the girl supposedly now has, uh, you know, this shaved pate, cut, cut hair in the Manchu style, but the drama doesn't really mention all those details. It's, it's kind of leaving it blank there for us, to, for us to imagine. Whenever the dramas come to the point of actual clothing change or mentioning of hairstyle, they tend to be uh, obscure because it's just hard for a drama to, to represent these this issues. And it, it was a sensitive topic in early Qing society. So I sometimes find it interesting that they, I can almost, uh, almost feel the challenges that the authors uh, were facing when they composed those plays. So how am I going to write about this? Um, yeah, so I, I often find that those moments really bizarre and, and rich and interesting in its own way. Absolutely. And you mentioned that I love the father's reaction. Um, it is in, in the play itself. Uh, that is part of one of my favorite parts um, of this chapter yeah. is your description of how the father um, reacts to his son, because you're, as you just sort of said, it is, um, it totally undermines and undercuts the son's, you know, argument for why he he wore female clothing in the first place. The father sort of says, "I don't, I don't care," um, <laughs> which yeah. I just loved. But absolutely about the challenge of representing some of these things um, on stage, which I guess goes back to what we were talking about before about silences. Um, and there's a you meant you 
mentioned there, you know, the sensitivity around um, Manchu, of representing Manchu clothing on stage, and also the, you know, the, the subtle ways then that authors sort of use to get at um, Manchu clothing, which is something that comes up in chapter three. Um, and chapter three sort of features a drama that uh, looks at men from a Chinese family crossing geographical and sartorial boundaries. And there's a moment in the play where you're talking about, you know, how how cues were talked about or represented on stage. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I think it sort of gets at what you were saying about the challenges and difficulties and the way that authors are sort of getting around um, how to represent things on stage. Yes, definitely. And I'm glad you mentioned this chapter in particular because because this is the the chapter I started with actually. So, <laughs> it's um, it's this chapter's fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's problem. And there's one particular moment that got me hooked uh, onto this entire project. That's when the family, uh, as you mentioned, they uh, so basically the father right before the fall of the Ming traveled from Suzhou to southwest Yunnan and served as a magistrate. And then after, during the turmoil of change changes, he resigned from office and then lived as a recluse until over, I think over a decade later, his, his son traveled from Suzhou to Yunnan, found his parents and brought them back home. Um, and the moment is when they reunited uh, in, in Yunnan, and they are about to um, to leave for Suzhou. They, they come to the border between Manchu Qing territory and, and non-Manchu territory. And the son says to the father and uh, a cousin that in front of us, that's the territory of the Qing dynasty. And you too must shave your, he- your head and change your clothes. And, and then the, the father said, naturally so. And he sings an aria, a song, and the chapter ends. I mean, the scene ends. And after that, the, the drama quickly jumps to a final reunion at home. Um, so how did they change their clothes? Again, that, that does not happen on stage. We do not know. So that's, that's the moment when I, when I read the drama, I, I read this scene, I just I just paused and thought so so what what how do they do it uh, now okay they have to cross the border into Qing territory and they have to change their clothes and hairstyle but the drama just remains silent on that point um, and this also tied to what you mentioned the cues the Manchu style cues so uh, according to the policy at least um, in early Qing society especially in Suzhou the male subjects were required to shave their head, leaving enough hair only for a thin queue. So, but in the drama, um, it doesn't really talk about the queue. What about in performances? I mean, I, I, you know, this drama is also challenging because it does not have a early teen edition. We know the play was written um, during the 1650s or 60s, performed, at a time period, very popular throughout the Qing dynasty. Um, A few scenes of it were on stage all the time, but but there's no early Qing edition. The earliest fragments we can find are uh, probably around early 18th century or mid 18th century. And then there are one or two 
relatively full editions probably produced in a late Qing period. So I have to collect uh, a dozen or so different editions of full or fragmentary uh, pieces of the drama and just try to figure out how they represent the, you know, the clothing hairstyle. In this, in the case, especially two runners sent by the Manchu government to harass the Huang family in Suzhou. So they are explicitly um, government runners from the Nanjing provincial government, and they must be wearing Manchu clothing, right? Manchu uniforms. But how, do, how does the drama represent that in, in the text and in actual performances? So I, I found all kinds of references to their um, clothing uniforms and the queue in, in some relatively early editions. You know, the, the, the fragments mention a belt, a rope. Sometimes it says a rope attached to the neck. So I, I have to <laughs> hypothesis here. So possibly in some early plays or early performances of the scene, they were improvising using maybe a, a, a rope or whatever, a, a, a strap of belt or cloth to, to represent the, the cue. And when the two runners were beaten by a heroic young man in the Huang family, their, one of their heads uh, falls onto the ground and the cue also falls onto the ground. So we can tell that's a fake cue. Um, so maybe, just perhaps, in some early Qing performance of the drama, they used a fake cue to represent the, the Manchu style hairstyle and also possibly because they were ten code officials in the early Qing, maybe they did not have real cues. So this is just some possibility. And I have to look at all these traces and try to piece together a, a possible uh, uh, way to perform the drama in the early period of the Qing dynasty. And then by the mid to late Qing period, uh, the, the scene that tried beating the officers was still popular on stage. And gradually, Manchu uniforms were used for those characters on stage. Um, and I talk about the change more generally in the epilogue of the, of the book, which I argue reflects some shifting relations between costuming, personhood, and the state throughout the Qing dynasty. So, so this is a particularly challenging uh, drama, given the fragmentary nature of, of its existing editions. But I also found it very uh, interesting to, to, to do something with this. And this is the chapter where, uh, on which Tina Lu mentioned, it's very interesting, but you have to prove this is meaningful, more meaningful. <laughs> I mean, she was commenting on an early draft of the play. I wrote a, a few dozen editions, versions of this draft, of this paper, this, this, uh, this chapter. So, yeah, this is the first one I started with, and yeah, yeah. Okay, fabulous. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad I asked about this chapter uh, because that was a fabulous, you know, um, your description of sort of stitching, of stitching together, if you will allow me, of all the different fragmentary pieces um, to put together this chapter. And I think, you know, you say that it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an educated guess, if you will, if you will like. It's an educated inference that you know uh, a robe attached to the neck or a sash attached to the neck is probably a cue of that. <laughs> that I think makes makes complete sense. But the the story of how this chapter came together is is you know 
in and of itself fascinating, as is the the drama that you're looking at. Um, with stitching, I feel I feel like we should just mention chapter four uh, because I do want to talk a little bit about chapter five. Um, but stitching is such a central part of chapter four. This chapter deals with um, two dramas that deal with the same historical incident of a chaste lady who, in order to protect her chastity from unwanted sexual advances, stitches together her entire outfit to protect her body. So she stitches her clothes together from her shoes to her collar. Um, And this is a fascinating chapter, uh, but maybe we'll just highlight it for listeners to hunt out for themselves uh, because I do think we need to talk about chapter five um, because this last case study shifts focus a little and you're discussing here Ming state attire in the historical drama Peach Blossom Fan, which you've already mentioned in our conversation. And you show in this chapter Uh, how in this play Ming clothing gets assigned to the subordinate and profane space of the theatrical, in particular through the use of, you know, theater trunks and the transformation of Ming clothing from, you know, state attire to state uh, to stage prop. So could you just touch on a couple of the examples that you cover in this part of the book in particular? Sure. This is the, this is the play, um, uh, this, you know, Taohua Shan or Peach Blossom Fan is a canon in the history of Chinese drama. Um, it was composed by Kong Xiangren, a descendant of Confucius, and it was completed in um, 1690s. Uh, it took him over, I think, about two decades to complete the whole play. Um, so, and, and so it's a really comprehensive reflection of the Mingqing transition that transpired almost a half a century earlier. And that's why I use this drama as a way to, to conclude the case studies, because it, it offers a historical reflection um, over the dynastic change. If the earlier chapters are talking about people's initial encounter with the, with the mental clothing system, and then their negotiations, um, in the family, in relation to the states, and in gender relations, this last chapter um, provides a perspective to see how that dynastic change now becomes history, becomes memory. With 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 that kind of uh, over overall understanding, I, as you mentioned, the title of this chapter from state attire to state job, I try to try to analyze the complex structure of the play because this is a, one of the most, probably one of the most uh, rich plays in Chinese history, um, especially the framing, the framing scenes, the beginning and the ending. The main story take, takes place in the last year or so of the, of the Southern Ming Dynasty. And then the beginning section of the drama um, takes place in 1684. So that's a few decades into the Qing dynasty. 1684 was the year when Kong Xiangren personally, personally guided, uh, the Kangxi emperor when the emperor visited his hometown in Qifu. So Kong Xiangren somehow wove his own personal life into this drama. It's about himself as an author, a playwright. It's about the, the fall of the Ming, the Southern Ming. And it's also about, um, his life in the early Qing. So I, I try to examine the role of clothing, 
how the meaning of clothing changes in the story from from the beginning of the story in the drama uh, where it is called ritual costume and it is a costume used in the uh, in, in the ritual performances uh, in worship of Confucius and then that connection that ritualistic meaning of clothing uh, is corrupted by theatrical performance by especially represented by the figure of Ren Cheng. So basically his insincere performance corrupts the solemn meaning of the ritual costumes. And then the drama goes on to represent how um, that ritual costume, the solemn meaning of Ming state attire, um, how the clothing, the attire is dislocated, moved out, in, out from the center of the palace to the periphery of the Nanjing city to a, um, a temple and how it is kind of transcended by a, a Taoist ritual. And also in the process of how that Ming state attire is disengaged from the body of a Ming subject, Ming loyalist subject, Shi Kefa. And then after all these transitions, um, the, the, the Ming state attire, well, this is hard to say, it is at the, at the end of the Ming Dynasty, at the beginning of the Qing Dynasty, and then it becomes similar or tied to state props. Because in the three Ming scenes of, scenes of the drama, um, the, the very drama of Peach Blossom Fan is staged for performance in a commercial theater in Beijing. So that's in the first scenes of the drama. And then the costumes used on stage in those performances in, in very oblique ways uh, are, are still tied to main state attire. So, so this is hard for me to really explain, but I hope this gives you a sense of the, the relations, the connections, you know, between clothing and a person and a state um, in ritual performances, and then clothing are transformed into state props after the historical vicissitudes are um, happen. So I think that's the general um, idea of this chapter. I'm not sure whether it's clear or not. No, I, th I think I think it is. And as you said, there is a lot going on in this chapter, as with all of the chapters, as you're dealing with sort of multiple, um, you know, ways of individuals to relate to their gender, their uh, ethnicity, and the state to which, you know, they owe loyalty. There is so much going on in this chapter in particular. And it also this chapter, and this is something that has, you know, comes up throughout the book. It's also de dealing very much with you know, time and conceptions of time and the historical past in large part, as you point out, um, you know, in several places in the book, these dramas would have been performed um, to an, an audience in Manchu clothing if they were performed at all, right? Which adds a different layer um, in terms of thinking about how the past is represented on stage and how that is felt in terms of the audience. Um, this is, yeah, this is, I'm rambling a little, but it is a fascinating chapter that I think really um, touches on the issue of time and historical past in particular. Yes, thanks for mentioning that, really. Um, um, yes, Tao Hua Shan, Peach Blossom Fan, it, it features the fall of the Ming and the establishment of the Qing. And possibly because of that, well, we cannot really prove it, but possibly because of that, Kong Xiangren was demoted after 
um, the drama was composed and performed and circulated in society. So it was sensitive to talk about the Ming transition anyway. And then in terms of time, yes, that's also a very important issue because, because scholars of Chinese drama, especially uh, theater costumes, usually say, well, Chinese drama is, uh, emphasizes the aesthetic dimension, not the historical dimension. The costumes are ahistorical or timeless. Um, whatever season you are in, wherever you are, um, which, whichever dynasty you are, if you are this upright official, you're supposed to dress in such a way, which is true. Uh, if, if you look at today's Beijing opera or, or country performances, but that, that is a, a result of historical development. And one of my arguments is that clothing and costuming were heavily tied to history, to time. In this case, there was one moment um, in, in the play um, that is also the last scene of the play when the Ming has the Southern Ming has fallen. Um, just a few remnant subjects, the supporting characters, they are holding a get together in the in the mountains. Um, and then that's like a fisherman, a woodcutter, and a performer. They are just having wine and having a conversation. And and then um, a runner sent by a local government in the early Qing dynasty comes on stage and uh, announces that he's looking to recruit some um, capable recluses to serve in the Qing government. And then he, uh, the drama introduces the term shifu, shifu, you can say that's clothing, costuming of the time, or contemporary costuming. And this is a um, one of the few references to shifu, like clothing of the time in, in, in early Qing drama. What does it mean? It means this person is wearing clothing of the new, new dynasty, the Manchu Qing dynasty. But, but again, well, the, uh, the list of props indicate that he's wearing a red hat, just a red hat. It doesn't really describe the actual uh, costumes he's wearing. But this, this magic word, shifu, really, really changes the, the meaning of clothing at this moment. Because before this moment, the play becomes a so-called costume play um, in some theater scholars' words. It's, it's about things in the past, using clothing of the past. And from this time on, people are wearing clothing of the present. So this is when clothing differentiates between past and present. Um, so clothing becomes tied to dynastic time in this very scene. Yeah, so that, that's the moment when time and clothing becomes tied to each other. I'm, I'm working on this topic now. I'm writing another paper on clothing, costuming, and the time in pre-modern Chinese drama. But definitely, it's a very important theme in this chapter and in this book in general. Absolutely. That was one thing that struck me about the book as a whole. I think the book does so much in talking about time and how we uh, think about time and, you know, how we see time playing out, um, conceptions of time playing out um, in the sources. So, I mean, thank you for that in particular um, and for writing such an interdisciplinary book that sort of combines lit uh, literature and drama and history and 
does, I think, so much in terms of thinking with and about the sources that you're using. As we've talked about, this is a real, um, you know, silence um, illuminator, I don't know, silence, you know, opener um, in terms of what you're doing um, in the book as a whole with your sources. So congratulations on that in particular. Uh, But now that you're finished with this book and, you know, the dissertation chapter that just took over, um, (laughs) turned itself into the project as a whole and in turn this book, you've already talked a little bit about what you're working on next. But do you want to say a little bit about uh, what you are working on and what is inspiring you now? Sure. Um, Well, first, thanks for the compliments. Yes. I, as you can see from this product, I'm, um, I, my career started from the love for poetry, um, for nature, but then, then I found that I gradually developed this interest in the interstices between personhood, writing, and the material world. In the case of this book, uh, I'm talking about clothing, bodies, um, and uh, personal identities, and writing and performance. So I kind of developed a uh, this interest, and uh, my current work, I'm I'm looking well in this book. I look at the living human bodies and the clothing. In the next or the current product I'm working on, I look at dead bodies in in forensic literature of late imperial China. Uh, by forensic literature, uh, I mean mostly the Gong An uh, or court case dramas and fictions. But also there are other materials, uh, fictional, dramatic, or other genres dealing with corpse examination. And that, that also involves some legal and medical texts involving the treatment and examination of corpses in homicide cases. So I, again, I try to use uh, this, this, this perspective of dead bodies as a entry uh, into the interactions between literature and society. Um, so I'm reading a lot of thriller stories, very uh, exciting, but also sometimes gruesome stories about killing death. Uh, yes, that that's what I'm looking at right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's That sounds like fabulous summer reading. Um, <laughs> the gruesome stories. Well, that sounds amazing. Um, and I mean, I think that brings, I think you brought yourself really full circle there into thinking about, you know, when you started, um, when we started this conversation and thinking about nature and the natural world. Um, so I, I could definitely see a full circle there. Uh, that sounds fascinating. And I really hope to, you know, hear more about that going forward. Uh, but thank you, Gojun, for taking the time to talk with me about this book, um, uh-huh. Staging Personhood. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks for making time to talk to me at this very uh, unusual time in modern history, perhaps. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs>